listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Pastor Jason. So uh, I'm a little jet lagged, so I'm, I'm a little out of it. I, I was in uh, Germany for two weeks. So I may fall asleep mid-sermon. I'm just letting you know because I've been falling asleep everywhere from cars to Starbucks. I've been falling asleep everywhere. Um, but we are currently in a series called From Glory to Glory. And we set out with this series, uh, which started uh, a few weeks before Christmas, about three to four weeks before Christmas. We set out to go from beginning to end in the Gospel of John. That's the purpose of this series. Um, and we wanted to do it by starting with Christmas, talking about the birth of Jesus, the word becoming flesh in chapter one of John, and end Easter Sunday, or rather a Sunday after Easter Sunday, we would use Easter Sunday to, to cover the second to last chapter of John, talk about the resurrection, and then after that, talk about what Jesus leaves in terms of a ministry for his disciples so it's a, it's a very, uh, I guess, ambitious endeavor that we've set out to do. And at this point, uh, we are covering a chapter per week. And we said this a few weeks ago, there's just no way we can cover all of the, of the goodness that the book of John holds, all of the details, all of the symbolisms that, for example, Tara was talking about last week. So in order for you to see that, I highly encourage you to take uh, the, um, the, the resolution, if you will, of reading through the book of John as we are covering it in our sermon series. So that way, for example, today we're in chapter three. This week, you should be maybe reading through chapters three and four, really looking for all of the nuggets, the little, uh, the, the good details that sometimes escape our sight um, instead of the more obvious ones. Now, we're today, as I said, looking in John chapter 3, and I could focus on other verses, but there's a very important verse in John chapter 3 because it's the most memorized verse of the Bible. It is considered to be the gospel verse of the Bible, and so there's no way around it. We have to talk about it because the whole Bible, in a sense, is built around this verse. It's verse 16, John 3, verse 16, that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So there it is. Depending on your translation, I'm using ESV. Uh, it's pretty much the same. Um, but it, it is the most quoted uh, verse, in fact. Uh, wrestlers misquote it when they... <laughs> right? <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. Um, Austin 3.16, right? <laughs> so 3.16, it's a very well-known, in the world, this verse, whether it's known or not, people know that number, 3.16, right? And so it summarizes so much about the biblical narrative. Now, what we want to do today here is, as a, maybe a year resolution, learn to appreciate and wonder and rejoice in God's love for us. That's our goal for today and hopefully for the year. Because if we can learn to appreciate that, that will lead us back consistently to the word, to dive into our relationship with God and not just make it a chore, if you will, 
but rather seek he who loves us so much that he gave his son. Now, I, I, I love movies and I love comic books, and so I always have to find a way of connecting it to one. Um, and so the movie, that, there was two movies that came to mind. One was really serious, and then the other one was really like, okay, it's a comic book movie. Ricardo, are you going to do that again? Yes, that's the one I went with. One was Les Mis, and I could have gone with Les Miserables to talk about a great analogy. Yes, right? But that's the thing, Mark. Pastor Jason reminded me that you had used it as an analogy, so I went with The Dark Knight. That's what I go with. The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight is, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, uh, one of the two greatest superhero movies ever made. And if you want to know the second one, we'll talk after service. Not going to debate that now here because I'll get too involved. I'll get too charismatic on you. I don't want to do that right now. All right. But The Dark Knight, definitely one of my top two favorite uh, comic book movies of all time. Now, I, it's a movie that's right now, I think, more than 10 years old. It is more than 10 years old. It came out June-ish, 2008. So if you haven't seen it, I'm still going to try to not spoil the movie for you, okay? I'm still going to try to not spoil the movie. But the reason The Dark Knight connects to John 3.16 is because it involves a sacrificial action. In this movie, in a essential scene of the movie, towards the end, uh, Batman, quote unquote, the Dark Knight, has to make a decision where a person who was considered to be a beacon of light to the city, a beacon of, or of light and justice to the city, the person that everyone admired and the person who a lot of the justice towards criminal uh, prosecution hung on this person. Now, this person was actually, turns out, to be corrupt. He had an outer life that was very good and that people admired, but then towards the end, he becomes corrupt. And so the problem with this, with this corruption that overtakes this character who shall rename, name, remain nameless until you watch the movie, if you haven't, <laughs> the problem is if this corruption comes out to light, his whole, um, his whole prosecution falls. The city loses hope. It's, it, it's, in, indeed, it would be detrimental to not just the morale of the city, but uh, to the justice in prosecution um, of the city. And so a lot is hanging on this person who shall remain nameless. Now, this person becomes corrupt and dies... Again, I haven't spoiled it. I haven't given the name. <laughs> and someone suggests that I should maybe take the fall for this person. Why don't you take their crimes and place them on me? The Dark Knight in this case. He says, place the blame on me. Place the infamous actions of this person on me so that we protect the morale of the city, so that we protect the prosecution that hangs on this person, so that we can win the battle versus the Joker, who's the antagonist of the movie. And so this isn't a perfect analogy, but it is an analogy that works when we understand the love of God and what, why it is that we can say God so loves us. Because Batman is saying I am willing to take all of the heat, all of the justice, if you will, 
that belongs to this person. This person, who shall remain nameless, deserves to be prosecuted, deserves justice, deserves to receive the infamous reputation of his actions, but I'll take it upon me. Now, in the case of Batman, he does it out of a sense of love to the city, not of a sense of love to that person. And that's where the analogy falls short. Because if we were to compare this analogy to the gospel that is preached in John 3.16, we would have to understand that Batman, in that case, would be doing it out of love to that person who deserved the reputation, who deserved the, the infamous reputation, who deserved to, the justice of his actions. It's the only way it works. Of course, side note, watch The Dark Knight if you haven't watched it, because it's a great movie, not just a great superhero movie. <laughs> See, the love that God has for us is undeserved. And until we understand that, we will not be able to grasp how much God loves us. For God so loved the world, we cannot understand that till we understand that we don't deserve that love. And so the grace of God has been so appropriated by society and so the mercy has been so become such a part of the culture that we live in today that we, we think mercy is a given. That love is a given regardless of what you've done. But that's been appropriated from the gospel. See, the fact of the matter is, as sinners, we don't deserve to be loved. But God loves us despite who we are, despite what we've done. And until we process that, until we get into our minds that we don't deserve his love, we won't appreciate his love. It's, it's, it's a little complex and it hurts a little bit to think about that. Oh, I don't deserve God's love. Yes, I don't deserve God's love. That's, why he, that's in part why his love is so glorious. And because the person that takes the fall for me like Batman did is so deserving of that love. Until I understand that switch, I can't appreciate the love of God. And that's what we're going to try to understand today. Our first point in looking at the John 3.16 verse is that the gospel is simple. We deserved to perish for our sins, but God saved us anyway. That's our first point. The gospel is simple. Yes, it is complex as well. But we're talking about the simplicity right now. The gospel is simple in the sense that we deserved to die for our sins, but God saved us. So it, where do we pick this up in, the, in John 3.16? Well, we're going to try to break apart each, each uh, fraction, if you will, of that verse. The first word in John 3.16 is for. For. So what is the for for? We have to ask ourselves, what is that for in John 3.16 for? Why is it there? And it's because it connects to the prior two verses. The prior two verses, John 3.14 and John 3.15, read as follows. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's when John 3.16 comes. And it's unfortunate because a lot of Bibles make a separation from John 3.16, or rather between 14.15 and 16. They put a subtitle there. And really, you can't separate 3.16 from that because the 4 is referring to verses 14 and 15. It's talking about what makes it possible that we may have eternal life through belief. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And so we have to know what the heck Jesus is talking about there to understand the simplicity of the gospel. This comes from Numbers 21, where the people... Uh, the, the, the Jewish nation, Israel, had been wandering through the desert. Uh, they've been freed from captivity uh, from Pharaoh in Egypt, but they grow impatient. And they grow impatient because they're in the desert and they're hungry, and they basically complain and say, there's no food and water. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die? And they spoke against God and Moses. God and Moses just freed them. And they've seen a miracle after miracle. They, it's not like the experience you and I have. They were seeing pillars of fire. They were seeing signs of the living God acting on their behalf. And they go, and instead of trusting God, who continuously is telling them to trust, they complain and says, oh, you brought us out here to die. No food, no water. So they sin in their lack of trust. In their complaining, they've sinned, and they reap the consequence of their sin. Fiery serpents are sent. Some of them bite some of the Israelites, and they die. And this is where we take it up. Numbers 21, verse 7 says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it, up, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, much like a cross. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The simplicity of the gospel is in the fact that in that story, they did deserve to die. That's... It's kind of harsh to say it, it's kind of rough, but they sinned against the God that's been consistently providing them and giving them and liberating them and showing signs of love and of supernatural glory, and they still don't trust. The consequence of their sin was death, but they prayed for mercy and God saved them. And so the simplicity of the gospel is in that. They deserved to perish. See, now 3.16 makes that connection with the lifting up. They deserved to perish, much like the Israelites. We deserve to perish. But God loves us anyway and wants to save us despite our actions. So the gospel is simple in that sense. Bullet point number two, God saves us 
because he tangibly loves us despite our sin. So let's, let's just recap here. The first bullet point we saw is that the gospel is simple. We deserve to perish for our sins, but God saves us. Despite what we deserve, God says, I love you. Well, that's the point is the reason he saves us is because he tangibly loves us despite our sin. Romans 5 makes this clear in verses 7 through 8. For one will uh, scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ, who's not a sinner, died for us. You must understand that the love of God is not just a theologically theoretical love. It is a tangible love. It is a love that moves forward in action. It is a love that is evident and manifest in our lives. It's not God just saying, I love you, end of story. It is God saying, I send the son who should never die to die for you. That's how much I love you. That is the gospel. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. See, this is the point of appreciating the love of God. I have to sit on that verse and understand that I did not deserve the love, but he loved me anyway. I did not deserve the love, but he loved me anyway. In, John, in 1 John, the letter uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest. Again, tangible love. Among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Tangible, manifested love, not just theoretical love. We have to understand that. So we see it again, in this case, the same author, John, telling us that the Son has been set, sent, and in that way, the love of God has been made manifest. For God so loved the world, as John 3.16 says, in basically that sometimes can translate as, in this way God loved you, he sent his Son to die for you. In this way he loved you. So when we, when we look at this, when we look at these two verses, the one in Romans and in 1 John, what we take away with us is that it is out of love that he loves us despite our sinful nature so that we might live and not die as the Israelites were dying. Bullet point number three. This salvation that we've been talking about comes at a high cost Someone must take our place. This salvation must come at a high cost. Someone must take the fall for us, much like Batman does for this nameless character. So we're, we're looking at John 3.16 and trying to see all of the detail that's in this short Summary of the gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so now we've arrived at the fact that the only way this can be done is if the son of man is lifted up. There must be a price. There must be a cost. And this is truly 
the hardest part, but also the most important part for us to savor the God, the love of God. For us to appreciate how much God loves us, this is where we have to wrestle. It's right here. The cost of it. We've already been talking about it. It's the fact that I deserve to die, not Jesus. See, Romans 6.23 reminds us, this one's not on the screen, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the consequence of sin is death. That's what I deserve. And in order for us to understand that, there's a theological word that comes up in the Bible a lot, and it, and it, it, it tends to have a bad reputation. And I'm really scared to say this word out loud, and Pastor Jason and I were talking about it because it's a, it's a loaded word, and a lot of people have used it to oppress people in church. And that's not how we're going to use it here today, okay? Here's the word, wrath, the wrath of God. In order for us to understand the high cost, we must understand the wrath of God because it's a word that appears even in John 3, later after John 3.16. We must understand the high cost, so we must understand what wrath is. Again, it's a loaded word sometimes because in certain church circles, it's been used to shame and to, uh, and to oppress people in ways that, should, that are not biblical, that are not loving, that are not merciful. So that's not what we're doing here, okay? So let's, let's try to disassociate the way people have used it in an unfair way, and let's try to think about what it actually means. Here's what I wrote. Wrath is an appropriate reaction to injustice, much like when we hear of rape or murder. It is a just emotional reaction towards an injustice. Okay? That's what the Bible calls wrath. God has a just, meaning fair, a fair reaction to sin. It is the right reaction to sin. But because he loves us, he does not want the wrath to fall or remain on us. That's how much he loves us. The wrath should be on me. And it is on me until I accept what he sent as a loving action. Again, take away all the loaded misconceptions. Wrath is an appropriate reaction to injustice. Much like when we hear of inhumane atrocities that happen around the world, we have a wrathful reaction. And it is a righteous, it is a fair, a just reaction to react to those things when we hear of those crimes that are committed around the world. Well, God, who's infinitely more superior and holy, has the same type of reaction when we sin towards him. But he loves us so much, he does not want the wrath to remain on you. If you just get focused on the word wrath, and you don't understand that God loves you so much he's trying to remove what rightly should be on you, then you can't appreciate the love of God. And that's why this is a struggle. It's a little bit of a struggle because I have to think about how I actually am not deserving of God's love and how I've sinned in the past. It's the only way I can process this. See, the cost that I just mentioned in bullet point number three 
is that that wrath must be removed, right? It must be removed. But it's got to be placed somewhere. It is a just reaction. So if I take, if God takes the wrath off of you, it must be placed somewhere. Otherwise, it is not processed. It must be placed somewhere. And that is the love of God. In that he says, I will place it on Jesus. I will place it on him and he will do it on his own accord. He says it. That is the love of God. He takes my punishment, my guilt upon himself. This is why a verse after John 3.16, it says, God, please take this home if wrath is still bugging you. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The world was condemned, but God sent his son to save it. And in this culture, often people get the impression that Jesus is the, condemn, the, the person that is sent to condemn. No, he is sent to save from the condemnation we've earned. It bugs me, but when I understand that God still loves me despite that, whoo, it's liberating. Because it doesn't stop with the wrath. God takes the wrath away and places it on Jesus. This is beautiful love. Unheard of love. So again, that's why in 3.17 it says that. This is why later in that same chapter towards the very end, John the Baptist is speaking in verse 36. And he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see it? We're condemned. The wrath is on us. God is trying to take it away. He must be merciful, but he must be fair. God is not God if he's not just. If there's no consequence to sin and evil in the world, he's not just. But he's merciful, so he wants to take the wrath away. The love of God is God saying, let me place it on my son instead of you. Wow. He doesn't deserve it. I'll place it on him and he willingly will accept it because he loves you. How he loves us. See, when we understand this, now we can understand this weird word in the Bible as well, propitiation. That's what it talks about, is that that blood satisfies. It allows the wrath of God to be placed on Jesus. Jesus had to bleed. He had to die for the wage of sin is death. He had to die for you. So that's the propitiation. A lot of times people think propitiation means the blood of Jesus washes my sin away. That's only half of it. The blood of Jesus satisfies, accepts the wrath of God. If not, we don't understand the full sacrifice of Jesus. The agonizing death wasn't the worst part for Jesus. It was the guilt of my sin. That's the love that Jesus had for me. That's why propitiation, even though it's a theological word and wrath as well, is so important because it tells us that Jesus is taking my guilt. Just so that you can understand this, 
I, you know, I'm, I'm just going to mention some, some sins that God put in my heart that are mine, Ricardo's, no one else's, okay? As we were in worship, God put these in my heart to remind me just so that I learn to appreciate his love more. In the past, I've struggled with pornography, lies, pride. I've been arrogant. I've treated God like a chore when he loved me. I've valued the opinion of others more than who God says I am. I value other people more than God. I've ignored God when he's clearly pointed the way to me. I've insisted on my way when I clearly know his. I've claimed grace for a little sin because I know I'm forgiven. That's a sin. <laughs> and here's the beauty of it. When Jesus was on that cross, there was a spiritual invisible document next to him that said, Ricardo crossed out Jesus with that list I just read out. That's love. So I, I encourage you to think about your list, not so that you can wallow in it, but that, so that you can say thank you. Because that's no longer mine. Jesus spilled blood because it fell on him. Propitiation, the wrath was removed and placed on him because he spilled his blood. He died for me. I don't deserve to be loved, but God loves me anyway. We all have a list like that. We all have a list of things that our past are currently struggling with. We know get in the way of our relationship with God, but God so loved us that even on that cross, he died for those, even as a Christian. <laughs> he died for those sins. He died for the sins you're doing tomorrow. And he said, I'm guilty, not Ricardo. I'm guilty. Please put, the, put God's wrath on me. Let God be angry at me. This is why Jesus screams from the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was abandoned by the Father. He felt forsaken because the wrath of God was on Jesus. The guilt of your sin was on him. That's how much he loves me. Oh, how he loves. Now, this is everything that God does for us freely. The question is, do people accept it? And so John 3.16 doesn't end there. It says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we must have faith in God to receive this free gift. And, and, and this part is very interesting because Sometimes you read passages like, it says, even demons believe in, in God. So what does believe mean? It's important. The Greek word is pisteo. And it, but, but here's what's very important about John 3.16. Right before it says believe, or right after, excuse me, it says believe, it says in. Believe in him. It doesn't say believe him. It says believe in him. Okay, so again, in John 3, 16, it says that whoever believes in him, not believe him, okay? Believe in him. The Greek word for that in that I'm so insistent on is ice or is, however you read it, which what it really means is into. So 
if I were to really take the Greek and translate it correctly, it would say, so that whoever believes into Jesus, whoever believes into Jesus, and this word into gives the sense that genuine faith in Christ is, in a sense, brings people into Christ so that they rest in and become united with Christ. This is not just believing facts. This is believing everyone, he, everything he says to be to me and uniting myself to his way of life. That means when, I, when he says, I am the way, take up your cross daily and follow me, I don't believe those facts. I act like what I believe. I obey. So belief is deep. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just facts. Yeah, he's the son of God, done. No, I must believe into Jesus. You must lean into him. You must dive into him, believing so genuinely that you follow through. That's what belief means in here. And then finally, so that's our, our fourth bullet point, by the way. Believing is a personal trust uh, and union into Christ. Believing is a personal trust and union into Christ. But our final bullet point is eternal life is the greatest reward because in it we shall gain Jesus. Eternal life is the greatest reward because in it we shall gain Jesus. I've often talked to people who tell me they're afraid of heaven because it goes on forever, right? And something I said before, <laughs> right? It terrifies us. It does. It's like, oh my gosh, it goes on forever. And something that I mentioned before in a, uh, in, in a previous Sunday is that sometimes we have this Disneyland mentality of heaven where we think eventually we're just going to be in lines and get tired of things. And it's like, oh, it's... And it's because we're so focused on the place, but heaven is heaven because Jesus in it is in it. And when we understand that we're going to be eternally united to someone who will always have something glorious to reveal to us, who will always, it's like a, it, imagine, this is a rough analogy because I don't like hikes, but my wife does. Imagine you're on a hike for which you're never tired and you have infinite energy, but you never reach the the, the crescendo of the hike. There goes that word again. <laughs> you never reach the climax of the hike. Every time you're on the hike, you get to some new valley or some new waterfall. It's like, oh, this is amazing. Can I see more? Yes, right this way. And it gets more glorious every time. But that glorious waterfall, that glorious uh, valley, that glorious uh, whatever it is on that hike, that's just more of the glory of God that you're experiencing in relationship with him. See, eternal life sucks without Jesus. Sorry, it's the truth. Until we understand that we're not going to heaven for the sake of heaven, then we're, we're confused. If we can envision heaven without Jesus and just build our own version of heaven, we got heaven all wrong. It's about Jesus. When Paul talks to us in Philippians, he says in chapter one that his desire is to depart and be with Christ because that's better than being here. He doesn't say, I can't wait to live forever. You understand that? Paul is not celebrating, oh, I'm gonna, I can't wait to live forever and just sit around looking at white space. That's not what heaven is. He says, I can't wait to depart and be with Christ. He's wrestling 
in this chapter with, oh, I, I, I should stay alive. I should be here with you guys because the church needs me. But you know what? I really prefer to be with Jesus. I'm struggling here. And he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two, meaning staying alive or going with Jesus. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Again, he's not saying my desire is to depart and live forever staring at white space or, you know, Disneyland rides or whatever. That's not what it's about. It's about him. We must understand eternal life as eternal union with Christ. And we're on this endless hike of discovering more and more of Jesus. And we're never bored. It's, 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 we can't even think about it because we get bored of people in our lives. <laughs> We sometimes are like, oh yeah, like I, I, I know, I know, like Carlos isn't here, but I know what Carlos is going to say when I say this. He's going to say, meh, because that's what Carlos does, <laughs> right? So, but, and I love Carlos to death. But what I'm trying to say is sometimes we in our limitations, we're like, well, stuck with someone forever. No, stuck with Jesus forever is beyond imagination. And it is the wildest ride that we will ever take. And that's why we live for heaven, not for now. Because we are living for Jesus. Because he loved me so much, he took the wrath that belonged to me into him. So the summary of John 3.16 is simple. We deserve to be punished, but God still loves us and displays in tangible fashion his love by the ultimate sacrifice, giving up his perfect son in order for believers to gain him forever in order for believers to gain him forever. Notice there, I didn't write, in order for believers to live forever. That's not the end game. The end game is to gain Jesus forever. The one who said, I willingly take the wrath that belongs to you onto me because I and the Father love you. That's the gospel. As the, as the worship band starts to come back up, what, what, I, what I pray for us, for myself, as a church, is that as 2019 goes forth and we, we go back to our daily lives throughout the week, that we would not forget the value of God's love for us, that we would not forget why it is that he loves us so, because we didn't deserve it, and Jesus, or we deserved it, and Jesus didn't, and he flipped the script. When we understand that, we can truly value the love of God because Jesus so didn't deserve it. He knew not sin, but he took all of my sins. He took that list. We all have a list. So if you're thinking about that list right now, my prayer is that you would rejoice, as shocking as that is, rejoice in the fact that that list erased your name. Jesus erased your name and placed his on that, and that we would savor that love that he has for us. If we savor his love, we will go into his word every day. We will pray every day, not as a, as a chore, but because we want to enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, may your love, may your agape love, may your, your love despite our sin always be present in our minds, in our daily actions, that we would not take you for granted, that we would, that we would be motivated, uh, that we would be prompted to live 
as we believe in you, into you, trusting fully in you, in who you are and in your promises, that we would seek to glorify you through our actions because of how much you love us. We love you because you loved us first, Father. Remind us of this. And whenever our sin comes back to haunt us, may you remind us of that grace and at the same time free us from that sin as John 8, 32 says, the truth shall set you free. As the ushers come forth, I pray for the tithes and the offering. I pray that they would be an opportunity for us to worship you. And Father, I also pray because after our tithes and offerings, we're gonna move into a time of communion. And I pray that our hearts would be ready to enjoy fellowship with you because of this outstanding, undeserving love. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.